open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll be looking at five verses, and you know, we won't even be looking at all five this morning. In fact, really just examining three verses today, and that's just because there is so much content packed into this text. I love it. I love it when God, he, he kind of breaks things down for us, and, and he uses multiple verses, sometimes multiple chapters, to give us like a few truths, and that's great. And so it's, it's, it's like he takes us, all right, here's a step to get to here, to get to here. And then when you're done reading the chapter, you're just like, oh, that was amazing. What, what an amazing singular truth that I just read from the whole chapter, right? And then there's chapters like 2 Corinthians chapter 6, where it's like every verse has multiple truths inside a single verse. And if you're not careful, like you're done reading the chapter, and like, what did I just read? Because there was so much in there, you, you kind of walked away with nothing, you know, those who, who do their devotions like a regiment, I'm going to read three chapters every day. I'm going to read five chapters every day. That is not the way to do your devotions, okay? So if you thought that was, I'm relieving you of that guilt. Don't do your devotions to reach a certain amount of reading a day. You do your devotions to reach Christ. And let me tell you, there's times where for me that's done in a single verse. You don't have to go any further. You like you read one verse, you're like, whoa, stop. Read the verse again, whoa. And you just kind of stare at that verse, you pray on that verse, you close the Bible, and you think about that verse all day. It's okay. Don't feel like you messed up because you didn't read an entire chapter or plural chapters. That's, that's not what it's about. God is not looking for some kind of checklist, how many chapters did you read today? And this would definitely be one of them. If you were to read 2 Corinthians chapter 6 as one of multiple chapters, you are going to miss out on what's really going on here. So we are taking this chapter, and it really is one large theme, but there are so many smaller truths in the theme that I cannot do it justice in one message or even in two messages. So we're going to take this chapter and break it into a mini-series called Blameless. That's the, the title of this miniseries, Blameless. Now, of course, I will be not teaching on this next Sunday. Next Sunday is Easter. We'll have a message directly relating to Easter on Easter Sunday. And uh, am I off a week? Oh, man. Because uh, I'm thinking, you know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking the uh, Easter egg hunt. That's what it is. I will be. My wife's writing notes to me. on the so Great. So next week, i got to come with my Palm Sunday preaching all over again during the worship service, and it's going to be all old at that point. You're like, Pastor Russ, you said that last Sunday. We're over that. Okay. Yeah. So we're doing, an, I'll announce that later. We're doing an Easter egg hunt on Saturday for the community. So in my head, Easter is, is next Sunday. Well, that's embarrassing. Okay. I'll move on. Then I will be preaching part two of Blameless next Sunday, and I'll get to the Easter message. My wife will keep me straight. I'll get to that on Easter. So don't worry. We'll preach the Easter message on Easter Sunday, okay? I'm not going to destroy Easter for you guys. I like how all of you just kind of went with it, though. Like, none of you looked at me weird or said you didn't raise your hand. And like, ooh, you know, some of you were thinking it, but you didn't do it. Okay, so here we are, blameless. I am obviously not blameless now, but that's okay. Blameless, verse 1. We then, as workers, together. <laughs> David, we're going to edit out, like, a lot of this morning's message. And you're just going to be like, I'm, I'm over here, and all of a sudden, like, I'm way over here. We're singing, and then, like, I'm talking, and then we're singing again. You're like, big cuts. We'll fade it. It'll be, it'll be okay. It'll be fades. You'll think it's professional. 
All right. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain or empty or without purpose. Verse 2, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in a day of salvation I have succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now that verse a little tricky to understand, but really, if you look at Isaiah chapter uh, 49, verse 8, you'll find a similar text. I'm going to read it for you. Thus saith the Lord, in an acceptable time I have heard thee, in a day of salvation I have helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth and to cause the inheritance, uh, the desolate heritages. So, so essentially that verse is basically saying, God says, I am the Savior, you are the saved, and today is the day I want to save you. Now, he said that to the Jews in the Old Testament, and he's saying that to the church in the New Testament. So it's not that there is only one day God wants to save people. It's every day God wants to save people. And God is saying, today, this verse was written 2,000 years ago. And God says, today, 2,000 years ago, today is the day to be saved. Today is the day to turn tragedy to victory. And then 2,000 years later, 2022, God says the same thing. Today is the day to be saved. Today is the day to turn tragedy into victory. So that's what that verse is claiming. Verse 3 now is where we're going to begin our message. And today I'll be looking at verses 3 through 5. And then next week we'll go back to verses 1 and 2 and then pick up with the previous, the previous and the verses following in verses 7 and on. Now verse 3 says, Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed. All right, so verse 1, read that again. We then, as workers together with him, Christ, beseech you, the church, that you also, that you receive not the grace of God in vain. You could skip verse 2 now because verse 2 is in parentheses. It's kind of a side thought. Verse 1 really is directly related to verse 3, which then says, so it says, don't receive the grace of God in vain, verse 3, giving no offense. Meaning, God is saying, all right, if you're saved and if you receive my grace, now do something with it and do something that is valuable. And what is valuable? Verse 3, it is valuable to not cause offense in anything. Why? So that your testimony is not scarred. No, that's not what it says. I know that's what you've been told. I know a lot of preachers and a lot of churches say, hey, your testimony, don't scar your testimony. Your choices, do they reflect well on your character and your testimony? Now, that's good. That's important. But that's not what this verse says. It says, be blameless. Do not cause offense. Why? Not for your testimony, but verse 3 the ministry. What is the ministry? That's not what, it's who. <laughs> Who's the ministry? God's church is the ministry. When we make decisions that hurt God's church, we take the grace of God, we throw it on the ground, and we stomp on it, and we spit on it, and we kick dirt on it. Now, the grace is ours. God's given it to you. He's not going to take it back. God's grace is basically saying, you're unsaved, you're a sinner, do you want to go to heaven? You say, yeah, I want to go to heaven, God. God says, well, you can't earn it, you don't deserve it. Do you want it? Yeah, I want it. Do you realize you don't deserve it? Yes, I know I don't deserve it, I know I can't earn it, I want it. Right here, God, me, I want it. 
God says, all right, I'll give it to you by grace. Freely, I will give you salvation. I will give you heaven. All you have to do, all you have to do. If it, if, and, and by the way, some, some people claim that this doing is a work. I don't believe so. I believe that this doing is an act but not a work. It is the act of faith. All you must do is place your faith in Christ, the sin Savior, the Savior of those who are in sin. Place your faith in Christ, and you will be saved. God's grace is given to you. Once it's given, it's not taken back. But there's a whole lot of Christians who take God's grace and throw it on the ground. They don't take God's grace and use it to further God's kingdom. They take God's grace and cause offense to God's kingdom. And that's what we're seeing here. The Apostle Paul is saying, do not be that kind of person. Don't be a Christian that when the world sees you, they see the church, they see the ministry, they see the kingdom of God as a lie because of how you live your life, because of the choices you make because of your character. So we as Christians, we are called, verse 3, to be blameless, to not be blamed. So the ministry is not blamed, to be blameless. By the way, there are many passages in Scripture, New Testament specifically, that refer to a Christian not being blameless. We find in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where a pastor is called to be blameless. We, we find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, to do all things without murmurings and disputings, without complaining, that you can be blameless. That's the church. That's everyone. There are other passages in Philippians. There are other passages in Second uh, Peter and 1 Corinthians where the church and the leadership both are called to a higher standard of blamelessness. That does not mean perfection. No one's perfect. You're not going to attain that. It means you live your life in a way where people see God through you. They see Christ through you. They know you're imperfect. They can see your imperfections, but your imperfections don't erase or eliminate Christ's perfections. They don't eliminate Christ's love. They see Christ's love stronger than they see your imperfections. Let me be honest with you guys. You were to follow me around for a week and, and watch me and everything I do, you're going to see imperfections. It's going to happen. But you know what's great? God doesn't call us to the impossible. You're going to see my imperfections. I'll see your imperfections. But when I see you, what do I see more of? Do I see more of Christ or do I see more of you? Do you see more of me or do you see more of Christ? That's blameless. That can be attained. That's our calling. We're asked to attain that. And so I see three points this morning. Our response our, uh, to trials, our response to persecution, and our response to sacrifice. Trials, persecution, and sacrifice. Because if we're going to be blameless, verses 4 and on, many verses tell us how to do it. And boy, there's a lot of information here. So we begin in verse 4, but in all things. So if we're going to be blameless, in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience. So in Philippians 2, verses four, uh, 14 and 15, we are told to be blameless by not complaining. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, a pastor is told to be blameless through his character. In general, so many parts of his character. In 2 Corinthians, uh, we are told as the church to be blameless through our patience or our endurance. Basically, be blameless by moving forward and not giving up. 
How many Christians cast a shadow on God's church and God's kingdom because they go to church for a year and they've had enough and they walk away and they never come back? If they, look, if they're saved, they're saved, whether they go to church or not. If, if, if they walk away and the church is still strong, then the church will still serve God. But there are people who know that man, who know that woman that walked away and will say, ah, I knew it, knew it all along. I knew Christianity wasn't the real deal. I knew it was fake. See, my friend, they only did it for a year. They, they barely made it a year, and they walked away. And through that person giving up in this life, blame is cast on God's church. So in this text, we are told blamelessness is achieved by endurance, by going forward, by not giving up. And then we're told in a bunch of different ways how you need to endure. And as I said, this is a multi-part series. Today we're only looking at really one type of way broken into three pieces, and that is suffering. (laughs) In suffering, now we find in the first one our response to trials, that's just general suffering because we live in a cursed world and because we serve God's kingdom, you are going to suffer. All right, so that's general suffering. We find uh, our response to persecution is suffering caused to you by God's enemies. And then number three, our response to sacrifice is suffering we choose for ourselves to further God's kingdom. We know this decision will, be, will cause suffering. We know this choice will be painful, but I lay it on the altar of sacrifice because I love God. All three main points include suffering, but they're broken up into three parts. And each of the three parts has three words attached to it. There are nine words of suffering this morning, broken into subparts. And we talked about them, trials, persecution, and sacrifice. General suffering, suffering caused by others, and suffering we accept to further God's kingdom. But all suffering. So let's see them now. In verse number four, we find in afflictions, necessities, and distresses. Now, those are some unusual words, so let me kind of break down what they mean. Afflictions means general tribulation or trouble. Necessities means uh, kind of a more extreme persecution or more extreme trials, um, more extreme suffering, related specifically, though, to trials, to, to things that we go through that are difficult. So the first one, afflictions, that's just we live in a cursed world. You could have a great life but still experience pain because the people around you are in pain, because there's chaos around us. And so we live in a chaotic world, and chaos hurts. And so we're hurting because of chaos around us. That is the first one. That's afflictions. The next one, necessities, has the idea of, um, uh, of, of a needed affliction, a trial, something that has to happen that we must go through. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Uh, teen years are a necessity, okay? And, and puberty is a necessity. And becoming a young adult is a necessity. And boy, those are some difficult times. I can honestly say, if I could go back to any time in my life, I'm not sure what it would be. I know what it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be the teen years. I would not go back to that. Now, maybe you had a different experience than I did. My teen years... Not so fun, mostly due to my own stupidity, not so fun. I mean, I wasn't abused. My parents didn't beat me. I didn't have friends who kicked me in the face and, you know, threw mud at me. I had good friends. I had a pretty good life. I just was stupid. And in my teen years, I made so many stupid decisions, I self-destructed for six years. You say, well, you could go back with all that wisdom. Look, if I had to go back with the mind of a teenager again, all that wisdom's gone. I don't want it. I would, honestly, I would choose, like, I'd rather be an 8-year-old more than I'd rather be a 16-year-old. I had some really good memories from eight years old. 
I was happy. I was free. And, you know, didn't, not much care in the world at eight years old. Teen years are tough. That's a necessity. But, boy, it's a trial. And, parents, if you've forgotten how hard it is to be a teenager, you need to do some reminiscing. Your teenagers are suffering. Your teenagers are hurting. You say, well, they've got it good. I, we, you know, mom and dad, we're good to them. Uh, they have all their clothes. They have food. They have everything they need. Have you forgotten? You don't need outside problems to suffer as a teenager. All the problems are up here and in here. Help them. Sympathize with them. Have compassion on them. And stop telling them you've got it good. They may have it good, but they're a teenager. So teenagers who have it good still don't have it so good. All right? So suffering. Let's talk about this idea of next one, distresses. Distresses is another verse, and by the way, gives even a more intense idea of pain in distresses, and that would be an emotional pain. It actually, in Romans 2, chapter 2, verse 9, talks about distresses, and it relates specifically as distresses to the soul, uh, to the inner being. So we've gone from general trials because we live in a chaotic world to necessities. We've got to grow up. We've got to go through difficult times, again, because of the cursed world, to uh, the, the harder one distresses the mental health condition of Christians, the, the suffering we go through because of our emotions and our feelings and, and our, our heart conditions, so many things that cause us pain on the inside. Romans 2, 9, the distress of the soul. And then we find in verse uh, uh, 6, I'm sorry, verse 5, excuse me, in stripes, imprisonments, and tumults. Tumults has the idea of chaos or riots. And so all three of those are related to decisions other people make that affect us, specifically because we're Christians and, and they are not, and they're enemies of God, and because they're enemies of God, they want to attack the friends of God. So the first three sufferings are general sufferings because we live in a chaotic world. The next three are persecution and the enemies of God attacking us. And then the last three in verse uh, 5, we find in labors, in watchings, in fastings. And those are all three things that God asks Christians to do but are hard to do. Just because God asks it of it, uh, to ask you of it does not mean it's easy. God is going to ask some things of you that are hard, and you have to ask yourself, will I make this hard sacrifice because I love God? All right, let's go back now to verse 4. We're going to move through these pretty quick. Our responses to trials, verse 4. But in all things, approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience or endurance, in afflictions, necessities, uh, and distresses. Letter A. Discipleship is not a call to comfort. If we are to be blameless for God, and if we are to be blameless so that God's church is not uh, cursed by the community, then we are called to a hard life. You know, it's funny. A lot of people say, oh, you Christians, you guys become Christians because you just want to cop out. You want the easy road. You got you to gotta have a God to get you through difficult times in life. You know, the unsaved, the atheists, those are the real tough ones. Those are the ones who get through life, and they get through it through their own grit, and they get through it in their own strength. You guys need a crutch, is what it said of Christians, and God's just a crutch. You bunch of weak, foolish, deceived believers. Let me tell you, Life is harder for the Christian, not easier. You are taking on hardships as a believer that you would not have to take otherwise. Now, the great thing is it's harder, but you're not alone. It's harder, but there's a reason. 
It's harder, but there's a purpose. It's harder, but there's a God. But it is harder, okay? There are choices I've made to be here as a pastor that are harder. I could have chosen another path in life that would have been much easier financially, much easier relationally, you know, near my family. Look, my family's in Colorado. My wife's family's in Florida. We have no one here that we're related to. We've got church family, and we love you. We've got friends, but our relatives are hundreds, some of them thousands of miles away. We could have chosen an easier path. The Christian life, the Christian service is not easier. It is harder. And that's what Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. Christ was very clear. Disciples are called to hardships. So, Christian, are you willing to accept the hardships, the general trials, the general sufferings? Because not only are you living in a cursed world, you're a Christian living in a cursed world. And it's harder for the Christian because we take on more, not less. Discipleship is not a call to comfort. And if you thought being a Christian would be comfortable, someone lied to you. Letter B, a disciple of Christ accepts the suffering required in service to the king. That second word, necessities. It means there is something you must do. It's often attached to necessities. It's often attached to the phrase, must needs be. It must happen. A teenager has to grow up. Going to be a lot of hardships in that growing up, but they got to grow up. They can't stay 13 forever in mind or in body. They can't remain a child. They must grow up. And you know the pain as a parent. You know the suffering that they will have growing up, but you've got to get them to that place of successful adult life. And we as Christians, there are necessities in this life that God says, no, no, you cannot stay down. You cannot stay young. God says, you've got to get up. You've got to. I have the privilege of coaching cross country. I, and I say coaching cross country because that means I get to watch as they run and I don't have to run. That's the privilege of coaching cross country. And I coach cross country from third grade to 12th grade. And I got to tell you, uh, we've got a lot of runners out there who aren't runners. They're forced. Their parents are making them. They're they're basically getting free uh, training, and I'm, I'm, you know, not yelling, but encouraging. Come on, guys, go. We're runners. We're not walkers. We're runners. We're not walkers. We're not joggers. Get going. Run. And so I've got children, and I've got teens both, who will jog, and I'll turn away. And guess what I'll do? Guess what they'll do as soon as I'll start turning, stop turn, turning away? They'll walk. Because I, I got them running around a lap. So I'm watching them here, and the ones behind me are walking. And so I say, hey, come on over there. Start jogging. Start jogging. They'll pick up, and the ones behind me are walking. Come on, guys. Keep going. And the ones behind me are walking. I am constantly doing this, turning circles. You know, I learned a trick. Here's what I do now. Before, if they were jogging this way, I'd walk like this way with them, but then always behind me. Now I go the opposite, and they jog this way. So I'm constantly seeing them faster, so they don't have as much time now to uh, walk when they should be jogging. So one of our joggers, this has happened on more than one occasion, a a jogger just starts walking. I'll say, come on, let's go. You can do this. No, I can't do this. You can do this. I'm done. I'm done. No, you're not done. Did you throw up yet? No. Then you're not done. Let's go. And they say, I can't go any longer. No, you've got to. And here's what I say. This is not race day. And if you don't experience the pain now in practice, when race day comes, the pain will be so severe, you won't compete and you won't finish. Take the pain now. You've got to go through the pain now so on race day you can finish and you can place. It's a necessity. So one day I had one of the kids 
uh, young boy. And he said, I'm done. I can't go anymore. So I, I walk with him. I jog with him. And I said, you can do this. Put my arm around him. I didn't push him. Put my arm around him. And just my arm around him, I jogged with him. He started picking up. I didn't have to push him. Just my hand around his shoulder, jogging with him, he started jogging. And he jogged. And he went. And he said, I'm done. And I said, no, you didn't. And he got two more laps that he could do. Now, he did throw up after two laps. But you know what? He was proud of that because he realized I did have more. And I pushed myself literally to the limit. To the limit. I mean, throwing up for me is the limit. That's what I'll accept. I'm only high school cross country, guys. I'm not college. So throwing up is the limit for me. So the kid hit that limit. And so that's a necessity. And you know what? So many of us Christians, God's like, let's go, let's go. Come on, you can do this. And his back's not to us, but in our head, oh, God's not watching now. Now I'll walk. And God's like, come on, let's go. And your Christian friends, come on, let's go. And while they're looking, you're jogging. And when they stop looking, okay, whoo, and I can walk again. It's necessity. We got to move. Necessity, pain is part of that. Now, so that when it really counts, we're ready. That's what necessities means. A disciple of Christ accepts the suffering required in service to the king. Are you in service to the king? You're going to suffer in his service. Not less, more. It was more suffering to serve God. But it's a suffering we accept. We know it has to happen. Letter C, God offers emotional support, for he knows that his calling includes emotional pain. Look at verse 4 again in distresses. And as I've told you, that word distresses is attached to the soul, to the emotional side of us. And God says, look, I know that my calling will ask much of you physically and emotionally. I know that. And that is why God said, I will send you the comforter. God says, my calling is not just going to make you tired. It's going to discourage you. It's going to wear you out. God says, my calling is going to hurt you emotionally. And so God says, I will help you emotionally. You see, the Christian faith is not just spiritual. The Christian faith is emotional. God cares about your emotions. The Christian faith is not just spiritual and emotional. It is physical. God cares about your physical being. And so God wants to help you in all three because God knows that his calling affects all three parts of your humanity, the spiritual, the emotional, and the physical. But Christians, if we're called to serve God, we are called to suffer, and that includes emotional pain. But we got a God who loves you and will comfort you emotionally when you turn to him. All right, we see our response to trials. Let's look at our blamelessness, our endurance, by the way. So number one, even though it is hard, even though it hurts, even though it is emotionally draining, patience means you keep jogging. You keep going. We are called runners in the Bible. We are called to finish. You don't stop. Number two, our response to persecution, verse 5, in stripes, imprisonments, in tumults. Tumults, again, chaos, riots. That word could also mean instability. Letter A, when you choose a side, you make an enemy. You know that, right? Remember when you are in school and your friends split and went ways? Remember that? I remember that. It happened on more than one occasion to me where my friends went other parted ways. And you were stuck in between. You, I still am friends with both. And you thought, you thought, ignorantly, I can be friends with both. No, you can't. At some point, because they're teenagers, because they're young and immature, they made you choose. Now, as an adult, I would like to believe that your friends are mature enough where it's like, whatever, I don't care if you're friends with someone else, whatever. But teenagers, they don't let you get away with that. If you can think back to your high school years and your middle school years, you were forced to choose. The world is not okay 
with you standing in the middle. The world will force you to choose. And by the way, so will God. God says, this is not some little friendship, high school, middle school clique we're talking about. This is war. This is a battle. And God says, you've got to choose a side. And Joshua stayed as for me in my house. We will serve the Lord. Who will you serve today? Who will you choose? Know this. When you choose a side, you are choosing an enemy. Stop thinking you can be friends with both. Christ stated you cannot love God and the world. You cannot serve two masters. You can either serve God or mammon. Mammon is things, the pleasures of this life, Satan and all that he has to offer. You choose your side. There is a side, and when you choose one side, you are choosing an enemy on the other side. Well, I don't know about you, but I'd rather the world be my enemy than God be my enemy. I want God. I want to be on his side. I have chosen my side, and when I've made that decision clearly in my head, I'm not shocked, bothered, or disturbed when the world doesn't like me. You know what? I'm actually shocked when they do like me. I'm a little perplexed when the world's like, hey, we appreciate what you're doing. Really? Really? Well, praise the Lord for that. I mean, you know I'm not on your side, right? Like, you know I'm with God, right? You know what all I can think is? Maybe God's starting to work on their hearts, and maybe they're starting to rethink their side. Maybe they're starting to reconsider they're on the wrong side. That's all I can think. Because if they have chosen their side clearly, and I have chosen my side clearly, they wouldn't be complimenting me. There are people on the other side that have questioned what side they've chosen. But you're not going to bring them to God's side if you yourself aren't on God's side. Hey, the Apostle Paul, he was persecuted. He was thrown in prison. He was whipped. We're told in verse 5, stripes. He was beaten, left for dead, stoned, shipwrecked on the way to prison. The Apostle Paul said, I chose my side. I know my enemy, and it's a decision I would make again and again, and a decision he did make again and again. Letter B, do not be surprised when a spiritual battle results in physical attacks. Verse number five, in stripes and imprisonments. You know, we like to think as Christians, well, you know, my choices don't really have that much of an impact. People may not like me, but, you know, I could care less if they like me or not. You know, them not liking me does not bother me overly much. Hey, you're fortunate if that's all that's happened, but do not assume that will be the case going forward. There are Christians across the world who are suffering a whole lot more than just the dislike of their community. I've talked with some Christians who've told me that their neighbors will harass them, that their neighbors in in other countries, other parts of the world, they will be harassed by the community because they are Christians rather than whatever religion of that time. If you read the news, you'll find the harassment is still minor compared to certain parts of the world where your family is drugged out of the house and killed. What then? What would you do then? If you knew that Christians were being killed in the community, would you still be one? Would you still stand? The Apostle Paul said, I chose a side, and I recognize that that side results in enemies, and I recognize that some, at some point those enemies may resort to more than just words. The Apostle Paul says, that doesn't change my side. I will endure through persecution even if those who oppose God resort to worse things than bad words. I'm sticking to my side. I'm sticking to Christ. I'm enduring. Patience. Let us see. 
God does not call us to chaos. He calls us through chaos. Verse 5, again, stripes, imprisonments, tumults, chaos, riots, instability. The idea that everything around us seems so crazy, it doesn't make sense. Don't worry. That's not God's plan. God's plan is not instability. God's plan is not chaos. God's plan is not riots. Nowhere in Scripture does God ever instruct the church to riot, to march through the streets and burn buildings. God does not instruct his church to do that. If there is chaos in your life, it is not God planning that chaos. It's God allowing it, and God says, let me get you through it. God wants to bring you through the chaos. It must needs be. It's part of the Christian life. But God's not going to abandon you in the chaos. No man, no woman left behind. God will pull you through. Number three, our response to sacrifice. And this is the one that you might call self-inflicted. The first one, because we lived in a cursed world. The second one, because we've chosen a side, therefore we've chosen an enemy. The third one, because we've chosen a king of kings, we want to sacrifice on his behalf. Self-inflicted pain, not because we're masochists, not because we enjoy the pain, but we're willing to put pain on the altar to further God's kingdom. Letter A, it's as simple as this, love works. Not love works as in if you do it, it will work. No, love, if it's love, will have action. Love will have a result how many marriages fall apart? Well, they loved each other. Did they really? Because you couldn't see it. The spouse couldn't see it. You can say it. If you don't see it, is it really there? Especially when it comes to love and especially in human relationships, saying it is not enough. You know, I found that a lot of counseling isn't so much uh, helping people to act on what they know. It's helping people realize that their lack of action is destroying their marriage. You see, they think, they know what to do, they just don't think it's a big deal. They know what they could do, they just don't think it really matters. They think words are enough. My wife, my husband, they know that I love them. Why should I have to prove it every day? You know, are they so self-conscious? Are they so immature that I have to prove my love to them? That's kind of how it comes across. No, here's the real truth. If you don't show it every day, is it really there? And that's the real problem for a lot of Christians and a lot of marriages. Love works. What did Christ say? If you love me, do what? Keep my commandments. What did the Apostle John say in 1 John? He, he basically said, uh, as far as I'm concerned, if I don't see your works, your, your, your Christian life, your Christianity is suspect. <laughs> I'm not saying that we are saved by good works. I am saying that love works. If you love, you will work. And in verse 5, the Apostle Paul states because I've chosen God, because I've chosen a side, because I love God, I will labor. I will work. And I recognize that working is hard. Doing a job and doing it well is hard and painful, but I will do it because I love. Letter B, a heart of service must be the result of eyes for Christ. Now, I've said in the past, other messages, that the greatest reason to do is because you love. But here's another good reason. You do because your eyes are on Christ. Look at that verse again. In watchings. 
There is sufferings because our eyes are on Christ. And because our eyes are on Christ, we're doing things we would not have done before. We're going places we would not have gone before. We are, we are praying, we are thinking, we are accomplishing things we never would have prayed, thought, or accomplished because our eyes are on Christ. But because our eyes are on Christ, and because we're doing these things, there are earthly consequences. There are lost relationships. There are lost jobs. Oh, yeah, Christians have lost their jobs for no other reason than that they're saved. And the choices they make as Christians conflict with their job and so they're fired. But when your eyes are on Christ, the loss, it will hurt, but it won't cripple you. I'm not telling you that a Christian won't hurt, but the pain won't destroy you when you are watching Christ. We talked about a few weeks ago, heavenly-minded, keeping your eyes and mind on Christ gives you the strength to endure through pain. And then letter C. When God's glory is our priority, it is easier to forfeit luxury. This last one of the nine listed, broken up into three groups, is fastings. Fasting is the giving up for a time food. It's a luxury to eat especially we as Americans, how much we eat and what we eat is purely a luxury. We are more blessed than we know. And for Christians, how often do we give up luxuries for God? There's some Christians who wouldn't give up any. There's some Christians, in fact, if God doesn't continue giving them luxuries, they'll walk away altogether. They're looking for the luxurious Christian life, and if God doesn't provide it, they don't want it. And then there are disciples. You see, a disciple, you might say, is the step up of Christians. I'm not saying they're more saved. I'm not saying they get a better place in heaven. If you're saved, we're all going to the same place. We're going to heaven, okay? And there's no more or less saved. But you're doing more as a disciple. A Christian is someone who's saved. A disciple is someone who works for Christ. And a Christian might be looking for a luxurious lifestyle, and a disciple has given that up and said, I'm, I'm willing to forfeit that. You know, it may be the disciple is still given some luxuries. God, in his mercy and grace, still gives it to him, but a disciple doesn't need it. You take the luxury from a lot of Christians, and the Christian gives up their name. You take the luxury from a disciple, and they're still a disciple. The Apostle Paul speaks of this. He says, I've learned to be content in both lot, a lot, much, and a little. I've learned to be content when I have a bunch, when I have nothing. I I can have luxury. I can let go of luxury. I'm still going to serve Christ. Do not judge a disciple by what they've got because there are some disciples who've been blessed with a lot. But a disciple can be judged on who they serve regardless of what they have or don't have. A disciple will let go of the luxuries of life, the luxuries of being close to family, the luxuries of a large house, the luxuries of multiple cars, the luxuries of a padded bank account, the luxuries of new clothes. A disciple enjoys those things. Who doesn't? But a disciple doesn't need those things to serve. You take away the new clothes and the disciple shops at Goodwill, the disciple's still a disciple. You take away the family, you move the disciple to a place of the country, away from family, the disciple's still a disciple. You take away the cars where the disciple only has one or a bike, the disciple is still a disciple. You limit the house to a smaller square footage, the disciple still serves God. The disciple says, God, whatever you want is yours. Whatever I have is yours. Give it to me. Take it from me. I'm yours. 
and there's suffering in that. There will be pain in that. But a disciple endures through the pain because the disciple keeps her eyes on Christ and says, it was never about the stuff anyways. I like it. It's nice to have it. But that's not my motivation. He's my motivation. And that can't be taken from me. Let's pray.